And so what we're looking at today is we're looking at Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, which is on page 871 in your blue Bibles, if you're using those. That's going to be our first text, and then we're also going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5 and verse 9, which is on page 967. So you can kind of put a finger or thumb there and then flip back to Luke 12. That's what I'm going to read first. So let's hear God's word. Luke 12, 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. All right, now 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5, and then verse 9. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. In verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Let's take some time to reflect on these words. I pray with me. Dear God, money is one of the most uh, there's awkward and touchy subjects for us to think about and be talking about here in America in the 21st century. A lot of people have a lot of hurts, a lot of pain hung up around these questions. And so I want to pray today that we would see that you have good news for us, genuine good news in how we think about what we have and how to use it, that you are a generous and gracious God, and it's by your grace that we have become, we inherit something that's worth even more than any amount of money here in this life. So I pray that you would inspire us with that vision, help us live accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. So you may have heard this about John D. Rockefeller. Uh, Rockefeller was one of the wealthiest men who ever lived on the face of the earth. Um, he lived around the turn of the 20th century, and he was an oil and gas like baron, you know, one of the guys before the big antitrust days. 
One journalist writes this. He writes, Rockefeller had a net worth of about 1% of the entire U.S. economy. He owned 90% of all the oil and gas industry of his time. Compared to today's rich guys, Rockefeller makes Bill Gates and Warren Buffett look like paupers. When once asked, how much money is enough? He answered, just a little bit more. The wealthiest man in the world owns 1% of the U.S. economy, 90% of the oil and gas production. Rockefeller, how much money do you need? Just a little bit more. I'm almost there. Touch more. Our passage today opens with kind of a random encounter that Jesus had. This happens without context or even like without warning. So Jesus has drawn a big crowd we saw last week. And so he has lots of people coming to him to listen to him talk. And he's been talking about all kinds of other things. Uh, And then this guy just decides like, hey, you know, he's got authority. He's someone that people are listening to. Uh, He should make my brother divide the inheritance with me. And so he shouts out to Jesus. He says, teacher, make my brother divide his inheritance with me. That was kind of the way inheritance laws worked in those days. Usually the oldest son would inherit most of a property, and then the younger ones would get maybe a little bit. Um, And so we don't know whether that was a just thing or an unjust thing that happened to him. But he thinks, you know, Jesus has been talking about God's kingdom and what it really means to know God. Um, I want more money. Maybe he can give me that, you know. Um, So Jesus' first response shows that he's not going to step into the situation. So his, his first response is, man, who made me an arbitrator over you? He says, that's a synagogue matter. You don't take that somewhere else. But then he takes the guy's request, it's really a demand more than a request, and he uses it to reveal a soul issue. He does this a lot. Someone will come to him with something, and he'll kind of flip things back around on them to say, there's a soul issue. There's a heart issue under this question that I'm going to really address because I can see that something deeper is going on. And this soul issue is not just for this man, but for all his hearers, because he turns it into something else that implies that issue for us today. That soul issue is greed. And Jesus gives us a working definition of greed at the end of this passage in verse 21. If you look down at it, he says, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's kind of a working definition of greed, that greed is the desire to be rich toward myself and not rich toward God or other people. It's rich toward self, not rich toward God. So back in 2010, I was at a different church. We were in Alabama, and my pastor at the time preached on this passage. And he said then, he said in over a decade of ministry that he'd been serving, he had come into, had people come into his office and confess all kinds of things addictions, you know, adultery, affairs, huge conflicts over every kind of thing. He said, not once had anyone ever come to him and said, you know what? I think I'm greedy. I think I'm covetous. That's, the, that's in the Ten Commandments. It's one of the top ten in the Old Testament. Not once had anyone come to him with that as their presenting issue. I texted him this week to tell him I was working on this passage and asked if he'd had anyone since then come and talk to him about it. It's been 12 years. And he said, not one. He said, maybe I can get someone to admit it, like when we're talking about something else, but no one has ever come and said, I think this is my presenting problem. This is the big issue in my heart. And his theory as to why that is, which I think is right, um, is first that greed and covetousness, they're internal things. 
You know, if you compare coveting to the rest of the commandments and the Ten Commandments, it's pretty clear when you've murdered someone. You know, it's like a, a line has been crossed. You know, if you've committed adultery, that's fairly obvious that that's happened. Um, same with stealing. But coveting, that's internal. That's just inside my heart. And second, we always point to people who have more money than us and say, they're the greedy ones. So it's like, I'm not greedy. It's the people who own yachts. And the people who own yachts are like, no, it's the people who own super yachts. You know, it's like Jeff Bezos, he's the greedy one. There's always someone richer than us that we can say, that person's greedy. It's their problem. It's not my problem. It's someone else's issue. But then you watch these ludicrous court TV shows and you see people utterly embarrassing themselves and torching their relationships over like a few hundred dollars or a thousand dollars. You know, they've gone on a fake TV court to get this arbitrated. Um, You know, the people who stop speaking to their siblings over, you know, like what to do with our parents' inheritance. You know, it doesn't, no matter how big it is. You know, people who are like, I lent some money to this guy a while back, and he hasn't paid me back, and now it's like I'm really mad at him, but I don't know how to talk about it anymore. You know, it's like we, we can see that greed can play a role, can have an impact in all of our souls. It moves a little bit closer to home. So in our passage today, Jesus confronts two types of greed. And then he gives hints at a way out of greed, which our Second Corinthians passage uh, kind of gets more into. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at two types of greed, and we're going to look at the way out and how we get there. So the first type of greed, the first way to be rich toward self instead of toward God, is covetousness. That's not an easy word to say, so I'm going to say coveting um, instead. So coveting is wanting riches that we don't have. So I envision it, we have small kids, kind of like a toddler. It's like grabby greed. You know, it's like, it's up there. I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it. That's what coveting is. It's I don't have it, someone else has it, and I want it. I want to grab for it. And this can be, uh, you know, coveting can include money, like this uh, guy in our passage who wants his brother's inheritance, but it can include much more than money. So in our passage, Jesus says, be on guard against all covetousness. And your Bible might say all forms of covetousness. And that's how it shows up a lot in the scriptures, all forms Because we can long for all kinds of riches that aren't just money. So listen to how God words it in the 10th commandment. This is back in Exodus. God says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So it's do not murder, do not steal, three words. Do not covet your neighbor's house, donkey, wife, anything. Um, He spreads it out. So you can covet your neighbor's house, where my HGTV watcher's at. You know, I can see you sliding down in your seats. Um, you know, you see a picture of, you know, wall-to-wall bookshelves made of two-inch thick live-edge oak boards mounted with antique brass brackets salvaged from the Titanic. And you're like, I want that. Why don't I have that? You know, it's like I, I made up that example a few days ago, and I've struggled with coveting that thing that I made up. Um, so you can covet a house. You can covet a vacation. You know, like their family goes skiing in Colorado twice a year. Why don't we do that? You can covet someone's talent. You can covet a retirement account. You can covet a family. You can covet someone's body. Increasingly, men as well as women are experiencing body image issues. And so this is a growing thing. And social media is a huge driver. 
You know, the, the visual kinds of social media, especially like Instagram and Pinterest, they're like an engine for driving covetousness. You know, it's like what they run on is coveting things that other people have. And Jesus tells us in verse 15 that coveting, that this form of grabbing greed is based on an illusion. So look down at verse 15. He says, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. One's life does not consist in how early he retires. One's life does not consist in the vacations her family takes. One's life does not consist in how interesting or respectable his job is. One's life does not consist in the size of her social media following. That's not what our life is built on. That doesn't make for a meaningful life. Here's a diagnostic question for this type of greed to see what forms it might take in our hearts. So the question is, what makes me think if I could have blank, then I would be grateful? Not prideful or proud, grateful. If I could just have that, that house, that job, that promotion, that family, then I'd be so thankful to God. I could finally be grateful. That's a sign that there's something out there that we want and we think that we need. You can probably feel this coming, but the Apostle Paul tells us what coveting, what this kind of greed really is. I'm going to read Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So idolatry, if this is new to you, uh, is not just like making a statue of a fish and then bowing down to it. No. Listen to how Tim Keller, he's a retired pastor, puts it. He says, idolatry is when our hearts take a thing and deify it as the center of our lives because we think it can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain it. Idolatry is when we take a thing and we deify it as the center of our lives. We think that will make me significant. That will make me secure. That will make me really happy. I can be thankful when I have that thing. If I have a $10,000 raise, then I'll be secure. I'll stop worrying about money. All money troubles gone forever. Once I get married or have kids, then I'll have a fulfilling life. Once I look like that, then I'll feel good about myself. But Jesus says, one's life doesn't consist in the abundance of his possessions. This coveting, this grabby greed thinks I'd have a better life if I had that stuff. So that's the first kind of greed. Second kind is selfishness. Selfishness. If the first kind of greed is grabbing for things that we don't have, then selfishness is hoarding what we do have for ourselves. It's taking my stuff and saying, this is mine. It belongs to me. Also like a toddler, as it turns out. Um, and so Jesus uh, really touches on this in his parable. So let me read verses. Let's look at verses 16 through 19. It says, He told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. So Jesus says, there was a rich man whose land produced plentifully. He had a lot of wealth and property, and his land produced abundantly. 
It's worth noting that there's nothing sinister or evil in this. It doesn't say he became rich through defrauding others or cheating his business partners or exploiting his workers. You know, he's not like Zacchaeus, who we're going to hear about in a, in a few chapters. Um, and it doesn't say that he became rich through exploitation or some other form of greed. It's, they would have recognized that your land producing abundantly is a gift from God. So it's God blessed his land and caused it to multiply. This would be like a man started a business and the business took off and went really well. Or a woman got into real estate at just the right time. The market soared and her investments paid off big time. So we would say, what's the problem? But let me read the verses again, verses 17 through 19. And I bet we'll hear what might be a problem. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. We have the words I and my 11 times in three verses. What will I do with my crops? I have so much to do with my stuff. I need to figure out the plan to do with it. So I'm going to spend more money on my stuff to make bigger barns, and I'm going to retire early, and I'm going to enjoy what I've gained. You know, fixed income, retire early. You know, my fire folks, people who know what I'm talking about. This is a world where most people experience what we would call food insecurity, where people, many people might not eat in a day, or maybe they get one meal, and that's what you get. There are basically no social safety nets. You know, there's no food stamps, no Medicaid, no system of charity, no free health clinics. Uh, You're on your own. Um, You have your immediate family, especially in the Roman Empire. They were especially bad at this, um, where outside of your immediate family, no one's going to take care of you. There's no help. The Jewish people were supposed to be different than that, and very often they were. So let me read a few verses that show kind of God's vision for this within Israel. So first, Deuteronomy 15.11. God says, For they will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. It says you shall open wide your hands to the needy. And it's not just your needy, not just your people. In Deuteronomy 14, we read this. God says, At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. So it says, I want you to care not just for your own people, for the most vulnerable people in our society, the poor, the orphan, the widow, the sojourner, people traveling from outside, says, I want you to be laying up uh, supplies for them to eat, for them to live on. And so God is establishing was a like almost non-existent in the world at the time, maybe this idea of a social safety net where people are contributing to the needs of those who are not in their immediate family. And God didn't want this to be just like a begrudging thing, that this is close to his heart. So in the ancient Near East, people assumed that the gods uh, loved most the people who were rich and powerful, that that was a sign, that if you were a king, it was because the gods liked you better. Uh, but hear what Yahweh, the true God, uh, what says about himself. He says this, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, 
the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Justice for the orphan and widow. Love for the sojourner. These things are close to God's heart. One more. This is from the prophet Ezekiel, and it's God condemning the Israelites for just generations worth of uh, evil. He compares them to Sodom, which was a city that was so evil, it was destroyed from the face of the earth in the book of Genesis. And we tend to associate Sodom maybe with sexual immorality or assault, for those who know, but God says this in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. He says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. God says the guilt of Sodom, you had excess food. You had way more than you needed. You were prosperous ease, and you were ignoring the poor and the needy. They got rich and didn't share God's heart for those in need. So with those in mind, we can look back at our passage and we can see why God reacts so strongly. We start in verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. God said, you thought these things were yours. I, I, my, my, tonight you're going to die. And then what? Where's your wealth going to go? As you were being rich toward yourself, you were just thinking about your own needs, your own desires, your own comfort, and now they're gone. You're a fool. They avail nothing. They don't go anywhere. So in a hoarding mentality, in this mentality, my first thought with everything I have is, how can I use this for me? How can I spend this bonus to have a better travel budget for next year? How can I save this windfall so I feel more secure about my future? How can I use my time to be living my best life? I, I, my, my, they belong to me. Now, this doesn't require us to take up any particular political program or party. Um, you can think that private charities or personal giving or, you know, uh, government programs are a better way to do this. That's a matter of personal wisdom and judgment. Um, we don't speak to that. But the hard question here is when it comes to the resources that I happen to have, mainly money, but also time, also other things, are my hands wide open, like God said? Are they closed tight? Am I ready to give freely to others? Or am I holding things fast for myself and my own? So this is rich toward self. It's mine. And this is being rich toward God. So we started this passage with two fools, really. Two mirrors that show us more about the greed in our hearts than maybe we want to admit. Um, and so hopefully we're chewing on the fact that we like to be rich toward ourselves, if we're honest. And we want a way out. We would like to be, hope to be, rich toward God instead. And our Second Corinthians passage gives us a snapshot of what that looks like. It shows us what it looks like to be rich toward God. We see a way out of greed. So let's turn over to that passage. That's page 967. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 for us again. So Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, 
Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, was collecting funds to relieve the poverty of Christians in Judea. Judea was undergoing this huge famine, and the Jewish Christians there by this time would have been kicked out of the synagogues and all the Jewish social services. And so they were sort of on their own in the Roman Empire with their poverty. And so he's raising a collection to take back and relieve them. And so Paul is asking the Corinthians to give, and here he tells them about the example of the Macedonians. This is a region a little bit north of Greece. The Macedonians are also undergoing a test of, of affliction, is what Paul says. They're struggling, and they're in extreme poverty. That may not be the phrase that you kind of expected him to say the way he was talking. But instead of letting that drive them to clench their fists and hoard what they have, they have a radically different mentality. What's different? First, they're filled with gratitude. So in verse 2, Paul celebrates their abundance of joy. How do you have joy when you're in extreme poverty? How do those two things go together? That's built on gratitude, on being so thankful for the things that I have that I don't care about the things that I might not have because God has filled my life wonderfully. It's on being so thankful that you don't need to hang on to it. If I'm always looking for more, if I'm always grabbing for more, then there's no way I'm going to be thankful for the things I've got because obviously I think they don't make me happy. I need those things out there, not what's right here. So gratitude, this kind of gratitude that abundant joy is founded on, is ultimately a choice in one sense. It's a decision to take my eyes off the things that I think will make me happy and put them on not just the things that I have, but the one who gave me those things. It's to recognize that I have a a good father in heaven, a Lord who is my shepherd, who provides for me everything that I need. And he's given me so many good things, and he's promised me eternity in an abundant world forever with him. That that's what I look at to be thankful. And so I I don't need to worry about the, you know, the extra room I could have on my house or whatever it might be. It doesn't matter anymore because I'm so thankful for the good God who's provided for me the life that I have. See, gratitude's a way out of greed because it chooses to see and savor the good things in our life as signs of a good God. Instead of imagining the illusion, like we talked about, the illusion that I'll be happier if I have that stuff out there because it's just not true. So gratitude is one way out of greed. And the other way out is generosity. So Paul says that the Macedonians, despite their extreme poverty, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. He says they gave beyond their means. That means they gave until it hurt. They disadvantaged themselves further in their poverty to give to people that they saw needed it more. They begged for the favor, he said, of helping give. You can imagine Paul thinking like, no, you don't need to give. And them saying, please, let us contribute to this need that our brothers and sisters have. You can hear the difference between that and a hoarding mentality. Not how much do I have to give? 
but how much can I give? How much do I have to let kind of slip through my fingers, but how much more can I hand out to someone who needs it? How much can I give to people in greater need than me? How much can I give to God's mission? See, generosity is a way out of greed because it opens our hands to others and makes us see their need or their joy as more important than my own. And for Christians particularly, that starts with what we see in verse 5. Paul says, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then through God to us. And so that's Christian generosity. That's where it starts. Um, Even generosity that goes outside the church, that doesn't mean they gave to the apostles and the apostles gave. That means that I give myself to God. The Macedonians saw everything I have, everything I am, it came from God and it belongs to him. It's really his. He made me. He gave me the relationships, the connections, even the talent that I use to quote unquote make something of myself. Whatever that is, it came from him, from outside me. And when I die, I'm not keeping any of it. None of it's doing me any good when I go. And so they put everything in God's hands and they say, God, you make the call. You tell me where this goes. You direct these funds. You direct the use of these possessions. If you give them back to me and let me use them, I'll enjoy them and I'll be thankful. If you send them out the door, I'll send them out the door. So gratitude and generosity are the way out of greed. But what do we do when we said, okay, maybe I have a slight greed problem. Um, and I, I can see the way out. I can see that gratitude and generosity are good things. Do I just suck it up and start giving things away and hope that I'll become happier? Like what, what happens here? How do we do this? What does God want? At the beginning of our time, we read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, and we're going to close by looking at it again. So Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So Paul says, you want to think about wealth? Let's talk about wealth. He says, God the Son is the co-creator of everything that there is. He made the entire universe, like we affirmed in our affirmation of faith, everything was made through him and not just through him, but for him. That he's the inheritor of every good thing in this earth, including our lives. He owns all of it. And he could have been the ultimate rich man who just said, this is all mine. Y'all take care of my good stuff. I'm going to be enjoying my life up here, and maybe I'll check in with you later, but maybe not, because y'all are kind of making a mess of things down there. So he could have been that way. But it said that he took this relationship with God the Father. He took his life in heaven, and he willingly left all of that behind. That it said he emptied himself and became in the form of a servant. He became a human being and not a human being born into wealth and privilege, a human being born into a blue-collar, struggling-to-make-ends-meet family. He lived a human life, and he didn't just live like a poor human life. He also lived a perfect human life to earn uh, human obedience to God's covenant. And then he died. He gave up the wealth, not just of his own like physical life, but of his own relationship with God. He died under God's wrath against our sin. That's why we say he paid the debt that we owe, that we had incurred this great penalty for all the ways that we've lived for ourselves instead of for God. Jesus died under God's wrath against that to pay the price for us to be rescued, to be rescued from our sin and to be brought up to an inheritance that is undefiled and unfading into his own kingdom, 
into eternal life in the new creation one day, a world without sin or suffering or death, into the presence of God, the, the absolute wealth, the highest wealth of seeing the beautiful face of God the Father and have it welcome us as a son or daughter. He earned those things for us. That's what it means that he became poor, that we could become rich. And so when we struggle with gratitude and generosity, when we face our greed and we say, what do I do with this? Paul says, the first thing we do is we look to Jesus. We look to the one who abandoned his wealth and became the poorest of the poor so that we could inherit the entire new creation. And when we look at that, when we see the beauty of that, then we see what he says in verse 15. Our life doesn't consist in what we have. Our life doesn't consist in a good retirement, in good possessions, in good travel experiences. We don't need any of those things because we have so much good out there for us that begins to free us to become the grateful, generous people that God himself, our Savior, is. Let's pray. Dear God, we want to let you be in control of all things. We want to see you as our Heavenly Father, as our King. And we want to live the life that you led, the heart that you had. That's a generous, giving heart. And so I pray for us that you'd help us see that we don't need more stuff to find joy. We don't need more stuff to be satisfied. What we really need is you. And we get that not through effort, not through privilege. We get that through your grace. So I pray that we could be captivated by that grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.